So there's so many different signs of how people can notice that something is not right in them, that something is off or changing. And it can be noticing something on the emotional level, noticing like a physical symptom or a physiological change, or even noticing changes in their perceptions, how clearly they feel like they're thinking or able to respond to people in difficult moments and difficult conversations that we're seeing so much of right now. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. My first book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now out in the world. Thank you so much for your support of the book. With your help, we are a number one Amazon bestseller in the business ethics category and a number one new release for time management in business and business etiquette. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories for my coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values, letting them shift out of alignment. Those simple misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order values first now at your favorite independent bookstore, or at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I wanna make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Rebecca Eldridge. She's a licensed psychologist who focuses on the integration of wellness with social justice. She supports clients and organizations through coaching, facilitation, speaking engagements, and group programs to strengthen their emotional well-being so they can pursue effective change-making without sacrificing the well-being of themselves, their teams, or the clients they support. She is passionate about creating psychologically safe spaces where people can connect as their whole selves, where they can experience a place of belonging and growth, and where they can expand compassion for themselves, even as they work to promote compassion for others. In our discussion, we talked about her career journey of supporting leaders as a psychologist, how leaders can identify burnout and the cost of pushing through that burnout. We also talked about the role emotions play in mental health, connection, and change-making. I really enjoyed our discussion, especially as we dug into the need to take care of the change-makers in organizations, 
like diversity and equity and inclusion professionals, human resources, and leaders that are passionate about making changes in their organizations. I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Well, I am just so excited that the listeners get to hear about everything that you are doing. And it's really special for me to have you on the podcast for the listeners. Just so you know, I've been connected with Rebecca for several years now. We went to the same graduate school, different programs. And we've been, we've reconnected over the years as our worlds have kind of intersected. And I'm just really excited for everyone to hear about what you're up to in your story. So do you mind giving us a little bit more about your background and your story? I'd be glad to. Thank you so much for having me. It is fun to get to talk again about this after all of these years, past to present. So I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'm one of the lucky few who knew what I wanted to do beginning in seventh grade. Like, remember telling my school guidance counselor, I'm going to be a psychologist. I want to be a psychologist. And I probably did not really know what I was getting into at that point or what that would really mean. But I've just been fortunate that I've always loved it ever since. And it has stayed true for me. So then, Fast forwarding, I knew when I was choosing a graduate program that I really wanted, for a variety of reasons, personal and professional experiences, to go to a graduate program that was strong in a focus around multicultural issues and was really fortunate to have that opportunity at Southern Illinois University where we first met. So one of the early experiences that kind of solidified the direction that I focus on now was still during training, during my supervision. And it was kind of this, this difficult moment where at a practicum placement, I'd been asked to meet individually with one of the group participants. And when I invited her to come speak to me individually, she immediately told me, no, I don't want to speak to you. And I was kind of caught. I'm I'm a trainee. I'm being told to meet with her. And yet I want to respect the fact that she doesn't want to talk to me. We agreed at my invitation to just step aside for five minutes. I think, I don't even think we sat down at first. I think I just said, well, you just, just for five minutes, will you speak to me? If you don't want to speak to me any longer than that, then I totally understand And within that five minutes, I heard her tell me in general terms about the stress that she was under at work. Now, this was a Black woman in a leadership position. And although your listeners might not be able to see this, I am white and very light in features. And so she was telling me just, you know, there's a lot of work stress. And she's describing some of the interactions she's having, some of the ways that people are talking to her. And I fortunately was aware enough at that point in my career to say, that really sounds to me like you're experiencing discrimination. How are you experiencing it? And within the momentary interaction, our whole dynamic shifted. 
And she went on to talk to me for the next hour to meet with me willingly another time, changed her whole interaction in the program because she had her experience seen and recognized and valued in a different way than than she had before. And that was such a powerful moment for me too, to see how much of a difference it could make to just be there witnessing somebody's experience and validating their reality and how much of an impact that was having. And that's the work that I've continued to love doing ever since then, this integration between wellness and social justice, of really supporting people who are brilliant from diverse backgrounds and have often been receiving messages again and again that squelch or dim that and helping them to see it witnessed and reconnect to it so that they can continue to shine brightly for all the people and the causes that they care so much about. Thank you so much for sharing that context. And in that example that you just shared with the leader who wasn't willing to meet with you at first, Mm -hmm. do you, do you think it was because she didn't think that you would understand or that she, she would just not be heard again? I can't say for her specifically exactly what it was. I can say from the number of people that I've had similar interactions with since then, that's the feedback that I get that until they know that somebody can get it, isn't just going to dismiss them again or tell them another version of maybe it's in your head or you're just taking it personally, or you just need to let it go. Or is it really that big of a deal? I mean, you know, all of those comments that unfortunately people from marginalized communities are experiencing over and over again, that with that, there comes really a just a, a serious question, a legitimate question about, is this really a time where I want to take this chance again? And if somebody else can acknowledge to them how valid their experience is before they have to make that final decision, it can open a whole different relationship and conversation. That's been my experience anyway. So you mentioned in that example too, that work felt for that that leader work felt overwhelming. So I'm, I'm obsessed with understanding all of these things. I think that we take on so much as leaders, the world is a chaotic place right now. Um, we're doing everything. And I think especially caretakers, women, parents, all of the above, we're taking on so much stuff. In my experience with the leaders that I coach, often we don't realize how bad it is until it's very bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how can we kind of identify some of these signs of overwhelm or burnout before it gets to that point? Can we, how do you help us figure this out? Oh, Laura, you make such a good point because that's, that's so often the case that we don't identify or even think of burnout or compassion fatigue until this picture of complete overwhelm of 
I'm not even getting out of bed or I'm spending every day on the couch in my pajamas. Well, <laughs> actually, given the past couple of years, the couch in pajamas option might not be quite as appropriate because a lot of us have spent a lot of time in pajamas the past couple of years. But this extreme example of overwhelm or burnout that is after a person has basically completely stopped functioning. And while that can be the end result and we see, and I've even heard examples from your previous guests of, of people really getting to that point where their whole body is shutting down or reacting. One of the things that's really helpful to notice is just those subtle shifts in your mood in your emotions and your perceptions. So I have a client that I work with, for example, who is highly productive. I mean, you could even say overly productive, working multiple jobs, going to school, taking care of friends and family members, exercising, trying to eat healthy, trying to date and form relationships, you know, a very full life. And she certainly is not spending a lot of time stuck in bed. And yet the emotions around everything that she's doing have shifted in a way where there's so much more effort required to do those things. There's not the same level of energy or in yourself of what do I feel like at a time when I'm doing my best? What do I feel like when I feel completely calm and connected and at ease and confident in what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? And you compare that to how you feel when maybe you're a little off. Maybe things are, are a little more irritating or getting under your skin more frequently, right? Or the time where you're getting out of bed, but it's, it's taking that extra push in order to do it and you're not really happy about it. Like such a key piece is learning to listen and tune into any of the sensations or emotions that we're experiencing to help to guide us to what we need to be healthier and when we ignore those, unfortunately, it steers us you know, more in the direction of burnout or overwhelm if we continue to follow that path. I really resonated um, with some of the things that you said around lower energy, around frustration or even resentment, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, I hear that from some of my clients. I've experienced it myself for sure. And I think that's a a really great indicator to look out for. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I've had to learn it a lot of times that shows up in physical symptoms too. Like if I notice I'm getting more headaches, turning into migraines, for example, then for me, that can be a sign of like, okay, I'm missing, or I haven't been paying attention to something that I need. And maybe that's just drinking more water, which it often is. Um, but it also can be like, gosh, there's, there's a lot of emotions that I haven't been making time or space for recently. And to add on even to those kind of internal cues of energy or the physical sensations, even our thoughts change when we're not in that state of calm, connected, feeling good, feeling like our healthy self, like it becomes harder to even think clearly or harder to know how to respond. So one of the things that I see a lot is people frustrated because 
in the world that we're in right now, there's so much tension, so much animosity, so much that's just weighing on the people that I work with who care so deeply and feel so deeply about the well-being of others. Yet they'll hear, they'll be in another comment, another conversation with a neighbor, a coworker, or even a friend or family member where they're just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to respond this time? And they find that either the words aren't coming to them or that the words that are coming to them are not particularly effective or helpful for furthering the conversation. So looking at how we can change on the emotional level, we're changing on the physiological level with any symptoms or physical responses that we have, but even how much our perceptions and thought processes change. So there's so many different signs of how people can notice that something is not right in them, that something is off or changing, and it can be noticing something on the emotional level noticing like a physical symptom or a physiological change, or even noticing changes in their perceptions, how clearly they feel like they're thinking or able to respond to people in difficult moments and difficult conversations that we're seeing so much of right now. So if that's something that you find that you're kind of struggling with, that you're so tired of thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to say this time? And that saying nothing doesn't feel good that the things that you're trying to come up with to say just don't feel great either, then I do have a download that you're welcome to use that's five ways to speak up that's purposefully created to give you options that are very simple and flexible for a wide variety of people and situations. I wanted to ask a follow-up question and maybe we can kind of combine this question with how you might use that download. So you mentioned compassion fatigue before. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit more what compassion fatigue is, especially at this time where there's just, there's so much coming at us Mm -hmm. with so many issues that are so important in the world in terms of social justice, women's rights, so so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about what the compassion fatigue is and then kind of hook back to the, I don't always know what to say when I want to say it and how we might use your resource. So compassion fatigue, actually, I had, I had included this in some of my research back in graduate school. I think it was part of my thesis at the time, but it's, it's people who are in professions where you're expending and it, it wouldn't have to be professional, but I think that's where it's had the most study as you're expending so much care for others. So if you think about medical professionals after the past couple of years, If you think about therapists who day-to-day are taking in and hearing the suffering of others and pouring out so much care into those relationships. And and leaders, I think I see this with too, socially conscious leaders where they're looking at the world around them, whether that's their immediate team or clients or the news, and you're feeling like, like you just cannot continue to care so much that sometimes it feels like the things that you care about, you almost become more numb to or disconnected from because it's taken such a toll, such an overload. If you think about your phone battery getting to empty, right? Getting to, getting to like the red bar and it's not having a chance to recharge and there's just nothing left. And 
that's the experience that people go through with compassion fatigue, where they've cared so much for so long without getting the battery recharged or the tank refueled that they just feel like they just can't. I just, you know, you hear people say things like, I just can't anymore. I just, I can't take it. I can't listen. I can't watch another news story. I can't have another conversation. And it's really this, this feeling of going from caring so, so much to feeling like there's nothing left to give. And it can really overlap with a lot of the symptoms of burnout and exhaustion and overwhelm that we see in other areas as well. I love how you gave us that extra context because on those days where like that news story comes out or this, you know, ruling from the Supreme court comes out or, Oh, Hey, there's another war or, Oh, Hey, there's this, or there's that. And then you, you get that, you know, coworker or you read something on the internet that you really feel like, oh, I should probably say something because this is something I'm passionate about, or it aligns with my values and Mm -hmm. I need to say something and I might not have the words for it. I love that you have a tool that can help us figure out what to say. Yeah. Just the cognitive overload of all those situations, right, Laura, just like the emotional and intellectual exhaustion of processing so much information that's like you said, and like your book and your framework, like when you talk about the values, I love that in your book and in your, in your whole focus and framework of like these things that we care so deeply about. And so because we care so deeply about them, it really pains us when there's conflict around them, when we're not seeing them upheld in the world. And when we're struggling even internally with that dissonance around, I really know that I care about this, but I just am am so depleted right now. What else can I possibly do in this moment? So yeah, the tool is absolutely for that. Try to lift at least a little bit of that mental cognitive load and give you that that opportunity to respond without it creating such a toll every time. And you mentioned like all the cognitive load. And I would imagine that you see this in some of your clients. I see this in some of mine, this just idea of there's a never ending list of things to do. And generally we're just pushing through especially when, you know, everyone is counting on you. Right. And, and, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, the costs of pushing through, you know, I'm a big proponent of having boundaries, but it is very hard, especially when it comes to the things that you care about most, probably the hardest, but what are some of those costs? I mean, the cost is really an you referenced this already. I mean, it's so hard because the clients that, that probably you're talking about and thinking of, and, and that I am too, both individuals and organizationally, they're trying to do so much that sometimes if they're not taking care of themselves in the process, then their efforts actually become less effective. I mean, that's the main cost, you know, you, you can talk about the personal cost of you not being as healthy, you not being as well. And in the process of pushing yourself past those limits, you know, I mean, if people think about a time where they've done this, I I know a time where I did this, I, I fainted at 
a hospital bedside of a person that I did not know who was at the end of their life. And, and it was totally an example of this where I, I wanted to help. I wanted to take care of others that had greater need than I had in that moment. I felt like I'm doing fine. I can, I can show up for this. I was volunteering at the hospital and I didn't want to take a break to go get a drink of water or find a chair. And so I was standing at this bedside for hours, not having eaten, not having drank anything. And I fainted. It's the one time in my life where I fainted. And so you can imagine how effective I was in this moment as I was <laughs> crashing down into, into, I think, I think somebody, I think the nurse actually saw my eyes rolling back or something she said, and, and managed to like somehow maneuver me down so that I didn't completely crash onto the floor or the hospital bed. But that's a good example, right? Where we try to do so much. And in the end, trying to do so much actually compromises the very effectiveness of what we're trying to do. You know, if you think about trying to saw something down, saw a piece of wood with a dull blade and how much longer it's going to take, how much harder it's going to take. If you're trying to get a clean cut, how, how much less likely that's going to be um, and how much more likely injury is going to be in the process. So the, the cost of it is that it actually works against the very change making, the very impact that we're trying to have. And that's a pretty big cost when it's costing us both personally and then we're still not really accomplishing everything that we're setting out to do for others either. That is so true. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you linked it back to the thing that we're passionate about, because often I hear a lot about, you know, if you don't pour from a full glass, you can't be there for other people. Um, that's very true. But with people that are just passionate about so many things, it's really not about them. Sometimes they don't have that frame of reference. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the thing that you're trying to impact, it won't be impacted. The thing that you care most about that advocacy or whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, it's not going to have the full impact because you're just pushing through. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, I think you said it really well there. Like if you want to be effective, this is, this is what I kind of keep coming back to in my own head is I'd rather be effective than right. And I mean, I really like to be right because I really don't like to be wrong. I really <laughs> don't like to get things wrong. Just totally honest, but there's something more important than that. And that is being effective. And so if you're saying these are the things going back to your values, for example, these are the things that I've identified are really important for me then it's almost counterintuitive and it's also really important to rearrange our paradigm around this, that it's not just about a little bit of self-care helps me feel better. It's also when I feel better, when I do a little bit of, I mean, self-care is a little bit misused and oversimplistic, but the gist of it is there, right? If, if I want to take care of the things that I care about, the people that I care about, the changes that I want to support in the world, then my best option to do that is to take care of the one tool that I have, which is me, my body, my voice, my life. And from that perspective, it really is still about serving the values that you hold. You mentioned some of the physical things 
that kind of show up. And, that, and sometimes those are just very overt because we can see them, we can feel them like in our bodies. I want to mm-hmm. understand a little bit more in terms of the role that emotions play in mental health connection and change making. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, I could talk to you all day about this, Laura. So, <laughs> I mean, this is what I love. This is what I do all day, every day, right? Is focus on this integration between emotions and well being and change making. And, you know, what I've really learned through my own experiences, as well as all the clients that I've worked with, is how much of a lighthouse our emotions can be. That if we really look at how to work with our emotions instead of feeling like they're fighting against us or we're fighting against them or they're just trying to thwart our efforts and get in our way, which which is, you know, to be fair, the way that a lot of us have seen emotions dealt with and used in the world around us or in our own families. So our emotions can really guide us. Like if we if we watch for them and listen to them and form more of a trusting relationship with them, oh my gosh, it just, I just see it make such a difference. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I came back from a recent trip and I got some hard news about a family member. And between that and the world right now, I have been shedding a lot of tears in the past week or two. And At this point, because of what I've learned, that helps me instead of hurts me. I'm able to practice the same things that I try to help others with, which is listening to those feelings, giving them space, trusting that they're showing me what I need, and that by doing that, I'm actually able to navigate around the bigger dangers or the bigger pitfalls that might really thwart my efforts long term and find that balance so that I can feel the intense emotions and move through them without capsizing. And to me, that's really powerful. And the people that I see and work with around that, I see what a difference it makes for them as individuals, for them as organizations, for ways that they can support the change makers within organizations, which I don't think enough is being done for. And So really giving that space to learn if I can listen to this feeling, whether this is a feeling like, oh, I know I feel really sad or whether it's a feeling like, oh, I have this sensation of a pit in my stomach or flutters in my chest. Some of the common things that we identify in our body sensations, then we tune into that And there's a bunch of different strategies for that, of course, and everybody might have their own favorite. People can kind of reflect on what are the ways that they do that already. Then that allows them to feel more stable and grounded, even through all of the things that we're seeing going on in the world around us so that we can actually channel those emotions. Those emotions now actually give us the fuel and the energy and the hope the enthusiasm to keep, to keep on, to keep doing the things that, that we need to do for ourselves and to support the change that we want to see around us. You mentioned this idea of trusting your feelings and emotions. 
what does it look like if we're not trusting it? Is it trying to get out of it? Is it denying it? Is it um, this kind of toxic positivity of it'll all be okay? Like, I don't need to be sad right now. Like, can you tell me what that looks like? Because I feel like I don't even know if I know if I'm trusting or not trusting my own feelings. So what might that look like if you're not trusting your own um, emotions? You just gave a great list for it, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yes, all of those things would certainly fit, you know, the kind of avoiding, minimizing or toxic positivity. It's making me think of a conversation I actually just had with a, a client this week where he's worked really hard to totally change his relationship to his emotions and to, to great, I mean, great benefit. And so now he's so much more ready to bring change out into the world around him. But what it looked like before, to your point was it can be closed off. And if you close off to yourself, then often you're also closed off to others. It's very hard to really connect and sit with the very intense and painful emotions of others if it's very hard to sit with them in yourself. So you can look for both internal signs, like I feel numb, I feel shut down, I just feel exhausted, I don't know what I'm feeling. It can be like feeling like you're constantly getting chased, trying to run from something that feels like you got to stay busy, 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 because you don't want it to catch up with you. Um, It can show up, especially in sleep problems at the end of the day, or either very vivid negative dreams at night for things that haven't had the opportunity to be processed or um, trouble sleeping at all, or waking frequently, trouble going back to sleep. I see a lot of people where it shows up that way. Um, because they keep themselves so busy during the day to not have to feel those feelings. And the trust piece of that is that experience of, I don't want to feel this because I believe that if I feel this, it'll make me unproductive or it'll, it'll make me overwhelmed. I won't be able to function anymore if I were to let myself feel this. And so a lot of times people do have some inkling at least that there's something that they're trying not to feel or that they're afraid of feeling. And it might not be all feelings. Sometimes it's maybe somebody is really comfortable with sadness, but not at all comfortable with anger, for example, or vice versa. And so those are some of the internal sensations, but then there's also signs in, you know, kind of feeling more disconnected from others, feeling like you're there, but you're not really present, always distracted, kind of constant running to-do list perhaps, which can have a Mm -hmm. lot of sources, Um, right? but can also be like, kind of depending on where that's coming from, like I need to keep myself busy because what will I be left with if I have a moment of quiet? So those are some of the signs. Thank you for expressing what that could look like, because it feels like that's probably happening to a lot of us and kind of recognizing it. It's really interesting what you mentioned. Like we think that if we get into and actually trust those feelings, we're going to be not productive or not whatever, but really by not what I heard you say is if we don't process those, if we don't trust those feelings, then we're actually 
not going to be productive and impact all the things that we really do want to impact. Is that right? Yes, it does definitely connect to what we were even just talking about a few minutes earlier about the costs of pushing through. So it kind of goes hand in hand between these, these two parts, like the cost of pushing through that we talked about of really not having the impact that we want to have or the effectiveness and the sustainability of that effectiveness and impact. Cause lots of people can do great things for a while. And then they're completely like have to just completely shut down, turn off, disconnect from everything for a while till they can recover. And then that cycle keeps repeating and with paying attention to and changing your relationship to your emotions your emotions can be really integral to that change making because they allow you to find that flow and find that balance where you can move through the emotions, harness the emotions to help you to be more impactful and more effective and not feel like you're running from them or fighting against them at the same time that, <laughs> that you're trying to do all of this great stuff. So um, does that answer the question you were asking? It does. It does. You also mentioned this idea of change makers. And so when I think about, and, you know, organizations, big or small, you know, some of these change makers that might be their job in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, it mm-hmm. might be more in human resources. It could be passion points for different leaders Mm-hmm. So how, how have you seen just the last few years for the, for, if you identify as kind of this idea of a change maker within an organization, how have those professions kind of fared in this overwhelm? And is there anything that they need to do even more specifically to be more impactful at work and to ensure that they're not burning out or, and being overwhelmed as, as well? I love your question. I love it because first the, the change maker name, I'll just say like, I have not found a good descriptor that captures all of the people that, that I see struggling with this. And that's the closest one. And so, as you said, like it can be people that kind of have an official title related to DEI or chief equity officer But it can also be often like the people working on the sidelines, totally unrecognized to try to change the interactions in a group meeting or stand up for somebody that they see getting disregarded or intervene in a microaggression. And it's often, so often people from the very same populations that suffer the biggest burden of the injustices and of the marginalization that also then carry the weight of trying to change those norms, those policies, and those systems. So when we're talking about that big of a group, there's a huge, huge cost to them because they're experiencing it on a personal level so often as well as the system level. And one of the things that I was most excited about recently was a conversation I just recently had with a chief equity officer who was sharing that he sees he has a relatively new team and that he can see already kind of their their faces, like the wide-eyed kind of overwhelm, like this is a lot. And And he's trying to really create space to check in on them 
he has, you know, decades of experience and he's seeing, here's what the toll that it takes on me. And here's the toll I see it already taking on other people that are new in their positions or newer to the field and who's taking care of those people. I mean, as organizations talk about, we care about these issues. Here's our statement of support for, you know, every month of the year. And yet where is the action taking behind that is, is often very disproportionately falling on the small number of people that are being asked on the one hand to take this role within the organization so that the organization can say that they're doing something about it. And hopefully with good intentions, wanting to do something about it. At the same time, they're still being expected often to carry their full workload plus serve on this committee. And other examples I hear where, you know, maybe the the CEO is happy that this person is serving on this diversity committee, but their direct manager isn't so happy about it because it's giving their team member less time to work on the projects that they're wanting them to complete. So there's there's really this tension around it that people are carrying. And that's why I'm so passionate about doing the work that I do to, to try to look for, here's something that we can do to support people who are carrying such a big burden. And for at the organizational level, if you really are caring about this and really wanting to do something about this, then there needs to be additional support for the people that you're asking to carry the load. I cannot agree with you more. And I'm so grateful that you shared those examples because that's how it shows up, right? It shows up with, we'd love for you to take on this assignment. It'll be really high visibility. And in your example, you just shared, um, oh, but you have to do your whole regular job and guess what? Your manager's probably not going to be super supportive. Right. And it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. In addition to, to your point of, um, usually we go to these same people, right? We go, we, we put the burden on the people who are already burdened. And so as you work with leaders and organizations, what does support actually look like? I hope it looks like things like investment, which means dollars, maybe um, extra resources. What other things might it tangibly look like? Well, I would love to see more organizations hiring support to come in. I mean, it can look so many different ways, right? Depending on the system of the organization and the team's needs. But, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about doing more of is being able to go into organizations like this one that I mentioned recently, where they're saying we need to support our team, we need to support the people that are carrying this load. So we're going to have maybe quarterly retreats, and we're going to bring in people specifically to support them and check in on them and support their well-being. You know, that's obviously an ideal, and there's different variations of that, right? So it can be managers that are checking in on their team. I loved the example that I heard recently of a manager who knew that somebody was at a time where the news stories were very re-traumatizing and very prominent for Black women. So, you know, recognized that and told somebody like, go take care of yourself. You don't need to be here today. And setting that example of 
watching for what your team needs because not everybody's going to need the same thing or need the same thing at the same time. But as a leader within an organization, you can be checking in on people and looking for ways to accommodate that. And at the system level, I really think there's so many more opportunities than are being offered to support sending somebody to a retreat or bringing people in to support their change makers, well-being, creating a space, and ideally a space where there can be a relationship that builds over time. You know, I know a lot of places like to do kind of one-off events, and those can be really good and really impactful for the short term, but I would love to see more people looking at how are we going to support our change makers month after month, year after year, and really putting those supports in place. I love how you said that. How are we supporting our change makers at work? And those can be leaders. Those can be people in the DEI space. Those might be leaders leading employee resource groups, lots of this, but how are we supporting the change makers within our organization? I think it's a really important thing to ask If you are a leader of a big organization, what are we doing kind of systemically to your point? And then what are we doing individually at the manager level to support each of our people? Absolutely. Well, I think this conversation, I feel like we can dig into so many things, but I am just so thankful to have you today here with the listeners. Can you um, tell us how to connect with you? Sure. Absolutely. You can absolutely connect with me by downloading the guide to the five ways to speak up. And you said that we could put that link in with the show notes. Yep. Show notes. Yep. And I'm also on LinkedIn and I am going to just say, I am not a big fan of social media. So while I am on a few different platforms, the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. And I would love to receive private messages about what people took from this that they relate to or that they see a value in what they're experiencing. Um, send me a personal message or send me a connection and or follow and and I put things on there about once a week. So that's another place to stay connected. Well, I thank you so much for providing us with a resource that we can dig into to take action. And then just thank you so much for all of the insight that you had and all of the examples that you shared today. I really appreciate you. Oh, thanks, Laura. I love your podcast and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.